going from Mark to Matthew to Mark to Luke to Matthew to Mark, and we're just going to kind of journey with it for a little bit. For the first few minutes of the sermon, there'll be very little exhortation. It's just going to be looking at the text. Now, before we begin to do so, let me say something to you that I have discovered in my own personal walk with God. Not that I'm the only one. Certainly, I'm not the only person to discover these truths. But I have found something amazing about the Word of God. That all the goodness that God has for us in the context of His nature is revealed to me in the Word of God. And that by looking diligently into it, I receive of His nature. Now, I'm not talking about just reading. Because sometimes you can read the scriptures and your mind be over here. Are y'all hearing me today? And, and, and you're reading over here. But, but when you're in the right vein and the Holy Spirit's upon you and you're actually looking, it might not be that you're reading great passages of scripture. It might be that you're, you're you know, King James English, you're affixed on one verse of scripture or a context of scripture. That's what we're going to be today, this triumphal entry and one particular event associated with this triumphal entry. What I have discovered is as I look the, the Apostle James says that we look into the perfect law of liberty. As we look into it, Paul said that as we behold the Scriptures, we're changed into his likeness from glory to glory. Now, here's the point I'm making before we start this journey. In our culture today, preaching is very diverse, and the application of sermon and, and the sermon content is very diverse. And sometimes we feel like that we have to teach you a life lesson every time you come together, that we come together. I don't necessarily agree with that. I just believe that if I will look closely at the Scriptures, that the Spirit of God, who knows the things that I have need of. Come on now, I'm way beyond where y'all are at right now. Just telling you. The Spirit of God who searches diligently the mind and the heart of God at that moment then, my, my attention can be on, and, and God quickens it in my heart, and, and, I, and, and, and it bore witness with my spirit, and suddenly God released a grace in my life. Amen. Come on. Gave me strength, empowered me for the moment, right? That's a powerful thing. So sometimes you don't have to have three points in a poem. Sometimes you don't have to have the screen showing the new sermon series title. Don't have to mail the card out. And say, follow this sermon. No, sometimes just look. Just look. Follow. Journey. Get on the, 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 for the cold, if you, can, if you will, for the context today. Journey with Jesus into the valley. Stand in the crowd. Listen to the voices that are crying Hosanna to the son of David. And let the very nature of God that is tied to his word. Because the nature of God is tied to his word. Right? Because in the beginning was God. Come on. And the Word. He is synonymous with His Word. So today, we're going to look for a few moments and let's just let it unfold and let's try to put the picture together. Now, you and I are familiar that this is the culmination of Jesus' three and almost one half years of public ministry. There's only one person that as this story unfolds in Scripture knows about what is about to take place, and that's Jesus. Now, he's attempted to share it with his disciples, but they couldn't understand it. 
There were those in the crowd that thought they understood the significance of the moment. It's been noted many times from this pulpit that they were looking for the messianic king in the lineage of David to assume the throne of his father David and rid the nation of Roman occupation, right? They were occupied by a foreign people, the Romans, and the people were, were, were militarily oppressed, frustrated, and were, were waiting for deliverance. They had seen the miracles of Jesus, and they supposed that if a man could walk on water, if a man could call a dead man out of the grave, if a man could pray over just a few loaves and fishes, come on now, then truly then that man could march into Jerusalem and without a great army could then begin to drive out the Romans. That's what their belief system, they believed that this was the moment. Because, you know, David, they called him the son of David. I'm getting ahead of myself, but it's just I'm getting stirred up here already because it's already starting to flow out right here. It's just coming. They called him the son of David. It's David that wrote in Psalm 37. It says, by my God, I shall run through a troop. And by my God, I shall leap up over a wall. And they remembered that David fought a giant. Well, Rome was a giant. And David didn't have a sword. David didn't have a shield. But remember what David had? He had faith in God. Come on. And David killed the giant. And so they just knew that if this is the son of David, we don't have to have a great army behind us. Come on, because God is in this moment right here. And that's why they're celebrating That's why they're anticipating the coming king, but they missed the context of his coming, right? He would later define it when he spoke before Pontius Pilate, my kingdom is not of this world. For if my kingdom were of this world, then would my servants fight. But for now, my kingdom is not of this world. So for now, the kingdom of God is not here and there. The kingdom of God is here. The kingdom of God is within you, right? And so, let's begin the journey. The 11th chapter of Mark. And when they came to Jerusalem unto Bethphage and Bethany at the Mount of Olives. Now, at the Mount of Olives, the Mount of Olives is a large mountain, a part of a mountain range that surrounds the city of Jerusalem. There are other, it's actually not the significant mountain. There's another one beside it that's a larger But this is the more familiar path. And Jesus is on the edge of the mountain. Now, just for understanding, remember this is the process. He's had to journey up to Jerusalem. So, to get to Jerusalem is to go up in elevation. To arrive on the mountain, let's, for example, say that if you lived towards Rosebud and you climbed sea level to get onto the edge of the mountain and yet you were going to Walmart, you would descend and then you would ascend. That's the journey, okay? Just follow that because that's important. Real quickly, he sendeth forth two of his disciples. So now he says, go your way into the village over against you. And as soon as you be entered into it, you shall find a colt tied whereon never a man set. Loose him and bring him. And if any man say unto you, why do you say this? Will you say, well, the Lord hath need of him. Now that doesn't give you the right to go to Walmart. And straightway he will find him hither. God had prepared that moment. Do you believe that? God had prepared the owner of that colt, 
God had done something in his heart saying the Lord is going to come for this cult. Right here. Don't let anything be put on the back of this cult. He had preserved that moment. Let, let, let everything. It was an ass. King James English. He was, it was an ass. And, and so he had not allowed anything to be upon it up until this particular moment because God had did something in his heart. And they went their way and they found the colt tied by the door without in a place where two ways met and they loose him. And certain of them that stood there said, what do you loosing the colt? And they said unto them, even as Jesus had commanded and they let them go. And they brought the colt to Jesus and cast their garments on him and he sat upon him. And so you can understand the context the two disciples have secured the animal, brought him to Jesus. The crowd has yet to gather, but will gather because of what has taken place in Bethany and what's taken place at Lazarus' house and the miracle of healing at Lazarus' house. Bethany is nigh to Jerusalem, so the, the noise is out, the word is out that this prophet has arrived and that there's something at work. There's a stirring at work. So now let's turn back to Matthew. I'm going to be going back and forth in the old-fashioned way, not scrolling it down by the screen. I'll be just turning pages. You'll be following to your best of your ability on the, on the screen. Matthew 21, verses 4 and 5. Now, all this was done. Everything that had transpired about Jesus sending two disciples was done because the Scriptures had foreseen it. Come on now, thank God for the word. The scriptures had foreseen this moment right now. God had prophetically spoken this through the prophet Zechariah. Now look at this. So Matthew is writing almost exclusively to a Jewish audience attempting to uh, convince the Jewish audience that Jesus was the Messiah was saying this happened exactly as the prophet. Look what he said. It was spoken by the prophet. The prophet who's Zechariah. Zechariah said what? Tell Ye the daughter of Zion. Now, sometimes the context of Scripture, there's not deep revelation hidden in it. Sometimes just the way it's written speaks to you. It resounds in your spirit. And I love the way this is written. This is from, this is from Zechariah's pen, the prophetical unction in his voice. Matthew's quoting it. Tell the daughter of Zion, behold, thy king cometh unto thee. My God, just hearing that, behold, maybe we need to tell our generation, behold, the king is coming. Amen. I don't know when, I just know he's coming. Amen. Right, he's coming. Behold, thy images in, in its mind, but you can see that Jesus is not fighting in the physical plane. Right, he's fighting in the spirit. He's moving his people towards something distinctly different. He's humbled. He's coming to them. And oddly enough, you and I know this, that's why they missed Jesus. Because they were searching for him to come in a different way. And a great multitude then spread their garments in the way. And others cut down branches from the trees and strawed them in the way. And the multitudes that went before and that followed cried. And they said what? We just sang it a moment ago. Hosanna. They began to worship God. Now, these people are moved by two things, as I've already noted. One is which they have seen the miracles. Luke recorded they rejoiced because of all that they had seen God do through Jesus. And they, they, some of them were there. Some of them were there in Bethany when they knew Lazarus was dead. They had, they had been aware of his four-day demise. And his body's about to decay. And they were there when he came walking out by the power of God. And that moved them. Because how many know that doesn't just happen every day of the week? Come on, that dead men come out of the graveyard. 
And so they're moved in their spirit and, and they know that this is no ordinary man. Something is unique about this man. Again, there's a belief that he is the messianic son of David and they're anticipating gaining their nation back again. And so there's, there's just, you know, in just worship that is impromptu. They just began to sing. I don't know if they had a worship team. I don't know if they had a musical instrument. They didn't have amplification of voice. But they just, they knew the Psalms and they just began to sing from Psalm 118, Hosanna to the son of David, for blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest hallelujah it's powerful now i want you to see now i'm going to turn to fill this context in back to mark's gospel because mark adds something to it that you need to see for just a moment now mark we're just going all over here today amen but we got to put the picture together right i want you to see the picture mark said in the eighth verse many spread their garments in the way Others cut down branches off the trees and strawed them in the way. Eighth verse, ninth verse, and they went before and they followed and they cried. Same thing. Hosanna, blessed is he that cometh in the name of the Lord. But notice what Mark captures. Blessed be, this is a revelation of what's in their heart. This is the kingdom of our father David. So think for us for just a moment of time, if you were a Jew that had suffered for hundreds of years under occupation first by uh, uh, other, other nations than Rome, but now the Roman Empire who has brutally occupied your land and you know that God promised David that he would have someone sit on his throne forever and, and now here's this man that has done all these miracles, then you're trusting that this is the moment. This is the moment. I'm not trained in warfare. I'm sure some of them thought. I'm not trained in battle. I haven't gone through the process. We're not David's mighty men. But I saw this man walk on water. I saw this man open blind eyes. I saw him speak to devils and people were delivered. I saw him take a few fish and multiply and fed thousands. And so surely I don't have to have a sword. I don't have to have a shield because I'm going to get in line behind this man and can't no army stop this man. Come on, that's what's in their heart right there. They're trusting that this is the moment right there that the kingdom is being restored. Let's go a little now. Let's pick up what Luke had to say about it. Isn't this good? Let's pick up what Luke had to say because Luke adds a little bit different, uh, you know, context here. He sees something or shows us something that the other two gospel writers omit the 19th chapter of Luke's gospel. Man, this is good today. So I've told you before, sometimes those preachers just get in the way. Sometimes if you'll just let the word speak, come on. And so now Luke picks this up in the 37th verse. And when he is now come nigh, even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives. So all the commotion is taking place. Garments are being laid out. Our king is coming. Blessed is he that's coming in the name of the Lord. Hosanna to the son of David. He's starting to make his journey downward even now at the descent of the Mount of Olives. The whole multitude, as I noted, to open the service is rejoicing and praising God for, with a loud voice. You know, and the roar was heard in the city. We'll see that later because the, when, the, when it happened, even, the, even the, the scribes and the Pharisees and the high priests and everybody, they came out of their temple and all their shelters and said, what is going on? There, there was this uproar in the city and it was this lone solitary figure surrounded by this giant 
mass of humanity and he's journeying down as they put palm branches in front of him and clothing in front of him and they're singing songs with a loud voice. The song is noted, blessed be the king that cometh in the name of the Lord. And some of the Pharisees from among the multitude said unto him, Master, rebuke thy disciples because the Pharisees knew the scripture and they knew that scripture pertained to the messianic promises. And in their mind, they did not deem that this man to be the descendant of David that was worthy to sit on the throne. They didn't deem that. They, again, they, they, saw it all, they saw him different. Matter of fact, they considered him a traitor to their own uh, understanding of Judaism. They considered him to be someone that had disrupted the common flow. See, Judaism in that day had adapted to a lot of Roman influence much like the church of our generation. We'll get there in a little while. And Judaism had become perverted and distorted. And it wasn't the true branch of religion. That's why Jesus had spent three years, you know, addressing these issues. And so when Jesus is making this journey and they're singing this messianic psalm, the Pharisees are saying, you need to stop the choir. You need to pull the plug on the worship team because they're singing a psalm that belongs only to the Messiah. But I love Jesus' response. Sometimes Jesus had just a way to just mute his accusers. Come on, somebody. And I love what he said. He said, I tell you right now that he said, if the crowd were to dissipate and if they were to leave and vacate me, including all my disciples, if nobody was to raise a hand, nobody was to put a palm branch down, I'm here to tell you that the rocks on the hillside of Mount Olives, the Kidron Valley, and going up to Mount Zion would begin to break forth in a sound unheard of since the genesis of time, that the king was coming and he deserved all the glory. The stones, the scripture said, would immediately begin to cry out. That's why you and I have to learn the value of worship. Worship is this, whether I feel like worshiping God or not, is doesn't matter, doesn't matter. He is great and greatly to be praised. And I've said so often, I want the rocks to hold their voice back on a day that I have the opportunity because I want my voice. Come on, I want to be loud and expressive in my worship that they, you got to turn me down rather than turn me up because I want to give God all the glory because I recognize who he is and what he accomplished through his death on the cross. Man, that's good right there. Let's go just a little bit further. But then, 41st verse, as he came near, only Luke records this incident. He beheld the city and he weeps over it. You know, Jesus still cries today. He weeps over. He weeps over people. He does. Who are caught in the bondage of religion or caught in the bondage of sin. And sometimes they're both one and the same. Are y'all hearing me today? But he wept. What I've noted this two years ago, that David wept when he came out of Jerusalem. You remember that? When David was expelled from the city because of the rebellion of Absalom, he wept as he went down into the Kidron Valley to go up the Mount of Olives. Now Jesus weeps when he's about to go in. And I, it was Alfred Edersheim who wrote about this passage of Scripture that said that when he says that he saw the city, here's what it said. Listen, here's what he said. When he beheld the city, he didn't beheld, behold the city with sight. He beheld it with vision. He beheld it with vision because he knew what was going to take place. He knew how that they were going to despise him and reject him and hand him over to the Romans and he was going to die on a brutal Roman cross but he knew as a result of the judgment of God 40 years later and the destruction of the city. So he saw. He, now, 
on that Mount of Olives, he could have saw into, he could have seen, excuse me, could have seen into the tabernacle or the temple and he could have saw the altar and he could have saw that, that, that there would have been smoke and incense. But on that day, he saw the vision of the city 40 years later, surrounded by, Rome, by Roman soldiers for two and a half years. The city's besieged. The people are in famine. They're killing each other. The Roman soldiers enter in, and Josephus said, in one day, 800,000 Jews perished until blood flowed off of that mountain until it was like to the belly of the horses. He saw that, and he wept. I wonder, he still sees eternity, church family. I know it's not popular in today's time. In today's time, everybody's going to heaven. But biblically, everybody's not going to heaven. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? He still weeps for humanity. He does. He does. So let's go further. If thou hast known, even at the least in this thy day, the things which belong unto thy peace, but now they are hid from thy eyes. But now they're hid from thy eyes, and the days will come about thee that thine enemies shall cast a trench about thee and compass thee round about and keep thee in on every side. And they shall lay thee even with the ground and thy children within thee, and they shall not leave in thee one stone upon another because thou knewest not the time of thy visitation. Now, the gospel writers all record that Jesus, not in the same order of the next event. And the next event... I'll just read it one time. Let's stay in this passage here. I won't go back and read it in Matthew's gospel, so I'll omit as we follow the order, but we'll read it here. And it says Luke and Matthew recorded almost the same, that as he enters into the valley that's called Kidron and goes up to Mount Zion, he goes into the temple. Now, Shane read it from Mark. We're going to read it from Mark. It's a little bit different in a moment, but they read it. Luke says, he went into the temple and began to cast out them that sold therein and them that bought, saying unto them, it is written, my house is the house of prayer, but you have made it a den of thieves. It was the cleansing of the temple. Money changers, tables turned over. The doves that were in their containers were loosed and the, the sacrifices because God desires mercy, not sacrifice. I'm on somebody. And he would not even allow anybody to care. I mean, he, he expressed an authority that had not been seen in any of their previous, you know, leaders in Jerusalem that he would assume such a role over the house of God. Now, here's what I found unique about this passage. It's not necessarily got anything to do with this context, but they expected him to go into the city and to take the throne of David, which was uh, that Herod was seated upon it. But Jesus didn't go to Herod's house. He went to God's house. Come on now. He went to God. See, because judgment first begins at the house of God. And if judgment begins at the house of God and the righteous scarcely be saved, where shall the ungodly and the righteous appear? And so Jesus went into the house of God and he brought a cleansing to the house of God and restored it to God's original intent. And it was not to be a house of sacrifice. It was to be a house of prayer so that men from all nations could come and find peace with God in the house of God. And so Jesus here, as he does so, though, I want to show you real quickly. Again, Shane noted by reading in Mark, and we're going to turn to Mark real quickly to find the context here. In the 11th verse, it says, this is where Shane read from and quoted, Jesus entered into Jerusalem. So really, it's just about the, 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 the particular order of the events. Mark records that it was on that 
same day that he did not cleanse the temple, the other gospel writers seem to indicate possibly it was that day. I don't know what, what the contradiction is. You'll have to read that from a theologian to decipher this. But I want you to see what took place. Jesus entered into Jerusalem, into the temple, and when he had looked round about upon all things, and now the evening tide was come, he went out unto Bethany with the twelve. And on the morrow, now this is where I brought you to today because this is what's on my heart and mind. And I'm going to have to omit for the sake of time some of the additional reading of Scripture, but my attention is going to be drawn to this passage of time or to this passage right here. On the morrow, as they came, he was hungry. Now again, Mark is right reading it in the context of before he goes into the, city, into, the, into the temple to cleanse it. He went there the same day of his entry, but Mark said it was he didn't cleanse it that day. The other gospel writers seem to imply that he did, but again, that's to be debated in theological issues or with theological leaders. But he saw, he saw a fig tree. He saw a fig tree with what? With what? With green leaves. And it says that he came to it happily he might find anything thereon. Now, I've heard it taught from this. It was as if Jesus was just doing this as a metaphor because he would have known that the time of the figs was not as of yet because that's what John or Mark records. But see, there's a deeper application of this. The time of figs was not as of yet. There's something more hidden into that context because those that know about the fig tree in ancient Israel understand that the fruit always appeared before the leaves. And that the fruit of a fig tree oftentimes came in three stages, three different buddings, three different times fruit came forth. And this would have been at the end of winter. And the end of winter was the end of the third cycle. And at the end of the third cycle, it would have been called old fruit. But the old fruit, because the leaves had appeared, should have already begun to ripen. And Jesus comes to it because Jesus is not unaware of the seasons. He thinks that there's going to be old fruit. There's going to be something of virtue on the tree. There's going to be something of value and of merit, something of nourishment, something to satisfy. The fig was, uh, was celebrated above all other fruit trees in Israel. And the reason is that I'll share with you in just a moment of time. But it was celebrated. And so he came to it because the Bible plainly says he was hungry. And when he searched the fig tree and found no fruit, the Bible says that he did what? He cursed the fruit tree or cursed the fig tree. And when he said this, by cursing it, and that's by cursing it means he spoke against it. No man eat of the fruit of thee hereafter forever. And his disciples heard it. Correct? So now let's jump ahead. The fig tree which thou cursest is withered away. Now, in Matthew's gospel, chapter 21, verses 20 through 22, we won't read it, but let me share with you. In the same context, it says that presently, presently, the fig tree, it withered away to the astonishment of all the apostles. And so, we're going to tuck that away, go back to it in just a second. And now, later, Matthew records, Matthew 21, verse 14, that with the fig tree cursed and the temple cleansed, the people that are blind and lame began to come to him, and he heals them. And I believe that if you're blind and lame spiritually or physically and you come to Jesus, God is still, come on. If you're spiritually blind and lame, come to him today, and he'll heal you. Now you say, of all this story today, of all this story, when I was reading it and preparing my heart, my attention was not on the foal. My attention was not on the crowd. 
My attention was not on the palm branches, even though we call this Palm Sunday. But in my devotions, my attention was to the fig tree. For for whatever reason, as I studied and prayed, my attention was drawn to a fig tree, a fig tree that looked to be fruitful, that the Son of God saw it from afar and came to it in anticipation that it would at least, if it didn't have new fruit, it would at least have old fruit, and he could go to it and he could take the fruit of the fig tree, and he found none upon it. And he spoke to it, and he spoke to its root, and when he spoke to its root, it dried and it withered away. And you say, Pastor, well, what is the significance of this incident that's recorded in the gospel writer? The significance is this right here. The fig tree had already been prophetically declared by the prophets of old as a picture of Israel and Judaism. Let me share with you what Hosea said. Hosea, writing hundreds of years earlier, said, I found Israel like grapes in the wilderness. I saw your fathers as the first ripe fig first ripe in the fig tree. So the nation of Israel uh, with Judaism is in the context prophetically as the fig tree. If you understand another parable that Jesus taught, let me go into it just real quickly. For the sake of time, I won't post it. They may post it. But in Luke's gospel, the 13th chapter, Jesus taught called the parable of the fig tree. And in the parable of the fig tree, it says that the owner of the vineyard came to the, the vine dresser and it said that there was a fig tree that was planted. And he said, the owner came to the vineyard three years consecutively looking for figs and not finding none and said, how long are we going to allow this thing to live? And the vine dresser, the, the gardener, the, the husbandman over the, the vineyard said, give me one more opportunity. Give me one more chance. Give me an opportunity. And he said, I'll dig around it. And I'll fertilize it and I'll sow into it. And he said, and then if it bears fruit, then good. And if not, then we'll cut it down. We'll cut it down and we'll throw it into the fire. And so really you want to know prophetically what was happening that day when Jesus came and he searched, he was fulfilling his own parable that he had given the nation of Israel slash Judaism for three and a half years opportunity to, to repent and to trust God and they had not trusted God. They were still bound to their legalism. They were still bound to their idolatry. They were still bound to their sin and they had not repented at the preaching of John and they had not repented at the preaching of Jesus even though they had boldly declared that repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. Even John himself had said every tree that doesn't bear fruit will be what? It will be hewn down and cast into the fire it will be cut down. And so on that fateful day when Jesus opened his mouth and spoke to the fig tree, he was prophetically fulfilling the word that was spoken by John that the axe would be laid to the root of the tree. And he said every tree that did not bear fruit would be cast down and thrown into the fire. And so what Jesus was saying is the structure of Judaism is fruitless. You can't find life in this structure. And so when he cleansed the temple and cursed the fruit tree, not from that day forward, you could never find joy through the structure of Judaism again. You could never find peace. You could never find hope. You could never find access to God. There was no access through all the structure of Judaism. There's only one access to God today, and that is through the person of Jesus Christ. That's the only place. So the fig tree was cursed. It was cursed. The axe was laid to the root of the tree. So, but before I close today, let me tell you what I've been contemplating. Is that in the Word of God, there are different levels to revelation. And you've got to be very careful because when you're searching for a word to what the Spirit is saying to the church, you don't want to ever manipulate the Word. But I'm moved by this picture image in my mind that the axe is laid to the root of the tree because the tree looks 
fruitful, but it's barren, not producing fruit. And so I've asked the Lord. See, there are different layers of prophetic fulfillment. And there are different layers of truth to the word of God. Here's a question I have to you. In the context of the barren fig tree, let me ask you this. Is there a second level of application to this text in the context of a nation or another nation other than Israel? My question for you today is our nation. Is our nation becoming a barren fig tree? Is our nation a nation that was raised up in Christian principles but are now so far from our, are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? Where we have gone so far the other way? Here's what I believe. Jesus taught about other fruitful trees. In Mark 4, he talked about a fruitful tree that was choked. Here's what he said about the choking of that fruitful tree. He said that the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches, the pleasures in this life, the lust of other things enter in and choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. You know, let me tell you what I believe prophetically is happening in America today, that the culture in America is becoming so exceedingly sinful and wicked that it's choking the word of God until preachers that once had an anointing upon their life now don't have any fruit. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying today? And churches that used to thunder about truth and righteousness and holiness are muted because the culture has choked us because we're afraid to be labeled as a religious bigot. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? But I came along to tell you today that there's always been a remnant. God's always had a remnant and you and I want to be a part of that remnant. And so he's laid the axe to the root. And I'm, I'm afraid. I don't know where America is. I know that God raised her up for a purpose that great, is greater than what she's enjoying right now. Where we're just gratifying and satisfying everything that feels good to our flesh. So I asked my, myself that question as a patriotic Christian. Is that application? But, but then I have to go further than this. Did you know Jesus warned of judgment on false righteousness? In Matthew 7, here's what Jesus said. I know that our culture today doesn't preach Jesus the way that the scriptures unfold him. But listen to what he said. Jesus said, every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit. I know that doesn't get you elected in a lot of contemporary churches today. Every tree that bringeth not forth good fruit is hewn down and cast into the fire. Let's go one further. Perhaps the American church is going through a purging. We won't read this, but let me say this. God's will is for his children to bear fruit, Amen. fruitful lives. Jesus said that herein is the Father glorified that you bear much fruit. Romans 7, I believe it is. I've got it written down just real quickly. Romans 7 verse 4 says we should bring forth fruit unto God. Fruit is a life that's reflected of the grace of God that's been inside of our hearts and minds. and our lives, it's changed us, and so therefore we are... We are expressing our lives and worship to God, and people can see it's tangible, it's notable, it's tasteable, it's discernible. Are you hearing what I'm saying today? Let me ask you today, perhaps the American church is going through a purging because Jesus said, every branch in me. Of course, that was the, the parable of the vineyard, but the principle is the same. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit. What does he do? This is Jesus said. He said he cuts it down and casts it into a fire. Then you say, Pastor Brown, is that really God in that context? Let me tell you the reason why a message like that is so shocking to you today, it shocks your system, is because, as I've said before, we've made God a sugar daddy in the sky. 
That's all we've made him out to be. He's not the judge any longer. He's not the creator. He doesn't have right and rule over his creation. Man has assumed that rightful role. We just define God as an idol any way that we want him to be. That's the way where we're at today. Let me tell you what's missing in American culture today and in the American church. It's called the fear of God. The fear of God is missing in our midst today. The fear of God. You say, well, Pastor Brown, churches used to put all the people in fear all the time. And I understand there is a over, that you can go over with, uh, in one particular angle, one particular direction. But something called eternity in a devil's hell ought to move us to say, God, I want to submit and surrender my will to your will. The standing between me and an eternal death and destruction, standing between me is the cross of Calvary. Come on, somebody. And without my putting my faith and my trust in the cross of Calvary and surrendering my life and becoming a fruitful branch in God's eternal kingdom, then I'm nothing more than a tree with leaves and bearing no fruit. We are the generation that celebrates Christianity by bracelets, by books, by movies, by our Christian T-shirt, by our new sermon series, Rather than by righteousness, come on somebody, and by holiness, and by walking in the love and the power of God. Let me tell you, if you're bearing fruit for God, people don't have to ask whether you're a child of God or not. Because your life displays the work and the grace and the goodness of God. And there's conviction in your life. Are y'all hearing what I'm saying? I'm telling you, I grieve over American to the American church today because there's no conviction and when I was a younger boy, and I know it's, it's, it's progressively got worse, but conviction used to permeate the church. And so when people had open sin in their lives, they didn't just sit among us. They were grieved until they were led to an altar. Not by somebody taking their hand and calling them out. No, the Spirit of God. The Spirit of God was on their heart. So heavy that they had to repent before God. And so I'm just grieved because I'm afraid that the American church... It's becoming, we look good, we look like we got fruit, but there's no fruit to God's eternal glory. So in conclusion today, when I studied the story, my attention was moved. And I didn't have a beginning and ending. I didn't have a certain point to make. I didn't have anything that I was going to try to just you know, persuade you in such a way or to try to look like this preacher that had really studied out this really orthodox sermon. I was just moved by a barren fig tree. A barren fig tree that he spoke to and said, nobody's going to ever eat the fruit of you again. You're going to be cut down and cast into the fire. And it was applicable to ancient Israel. It was applicable to Judaism but it might be applicable at different levels. And it ought to move us as a people. It should. It should. You know where the context I got saved comes from? Do you even know? Do we even know? I got saved from what? I got saved from an eternal death. Are you hearing me? That's where the context is. The context is I was doomed and destined to be cut down and hewn into the fire. But on that cross, the wonders of that cross, the blood that was spilled upon that cross, it was there that Jesus paid it all. And all to him I owe. And I moved as I contemplate his work 
and I find myself before him and say, God, save me and turn my heart to yours and let my life become fruitful for your glory. And I believe that that fig tree, that fruitless tree is still a word that speaks to us today to prove the hypocrisy in our American church today. Just hanging out with church folk doesn't mean you've got fruit. Come on, buying the necklace, the T-shirt, or even getting your own I'm second or first assembly bracelet doesn't mean you're bearing fruit. Fruit flows from the work of the Holy Spirit who's in your life. It's discernible. It's tangible. God can touch it, and so can people. Our heads are bowed, eyes closed. We're going to take communion in a moment, but I'm going to give us...